Uh, this is our third message from the epistle of James. Now, like we've been talking about, James is Jesus' brother. Uh, he is someone that took a long time for him to come around to the real reason why Jesus came. He had been around Jesus' whole life. I mean, he was his brother, but the light bulb didn't turn on for him until he was well into adulthood. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that James understood who he actually was. And so when he writes this letter, when he writes the epistle from James, he writes it to people who are much like him, people who are familiar with Jesus, but the truth hasn't really hit home for them. In this text this morning, I hope it hits home. We'll start reading uh, in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of the Lord. If you're with us last week, we read about how we uh, how we're looked how we looked at how we're lured and drug away by our sinful desires. But God, in His mercy, He gives us gift after gift after gift, and the best gift He's given us, we just read about in verse 18, which is what we read last week too, and that's that we have the new birth by the word of truth. And now James is trying to show in verses 19 to 20. Seven, how this new birth transforms us. He's trying to show us what life under the word looks like. He's trying to show us that how, how you've been brought, the word that brought you to life now informs how you live your life. And he's saying something really controversial to us as modern hearers. He's saying that we no longer determine how we live. The word does that. See, most of us, when we approach the Scriptures, when we approach the Bible, we're looking for uh, what Justin has deemed in one of his recent songs, a bit of sentimental grace. We're looking for a dose of inspiration. Or we're looking at the Bible, we're looking at the Scriptures to, in, a, in a detached way. We're trying to come up with a theological system or a political ideology. But what's hard for us is to come to the Scriptures and lay down our supposed rights to call the shots in our own lives and submit to what God says in his word. So here in our passage, he says that the word, after it gives you new life, then changes three areas of your life that are really practical. The first thing it does is it changes your speech. That's verses 19 through 21 and then verse 26. And then it changes your behavior. It's verses 22 to 25. Be doers of the word. 
And it changes your relationships, verse 27. So let's look at speech first. Now remember, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know that these people that James is writing to are people who are suffering. We don't know specifically how they're suffering. We don't know if it's a plague. We don't know if it's persecution. But one thing's sure, that they're being squeezed hard by their circumstances. And it makes it very difficult to do the the three things listed in verse 19 when your life's difficult. Those three things are this. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. See, oh, I don't know about you, but when my life's hard, those things don't come very natural. They don't come natural to me when life is easy, but when life is hard, it's more natural for me to be slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. See, I think we go through our days when we're observing other people's actions, and when we observe their actions, we assign a motive to their action, and then we judge that motive as, Usually, especially when things are hard, as being wrong, that we're offended by them. But what James is calling us to do is to do something very different. He's saying we need to observe people's actions, to ask questions that then require listening, that we're to be, that we're to, that, that we're to be very slow to jump to conclusions, to be very slow to judge, to argue, to debate. What we need to do, what we, we, we need to quit coming, pronouncing verdicts and opinions on every situation or person. And instead, we need to be curious. And the Proverbs are littered with tidbits about this dynamic, this dynamic of listening and speaking and anger. They're so sharp that I just have to read a few. And these are just a few. I, I had a list of about 22 Proverbs I could have read, but I, I didn't do it. I'm going with six here this morning. If you're a note taker uh, or you want to, you're going to hear these and you're like, I want to look at that again. All right, so here we go. 1019. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 11, 12. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs 13, 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 17, 28. This is, this is my favorite one. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. Anybody ever said I was just venting? A fool, uh, fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 29, 20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. See, you can look all over the scriptures. You can look at the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 5 and 12, and see a similar dynamic. You can see it in Paul, in Ephesians 4, and Colossians 3, and Titus 1. But the Bible isn't the only place that recognizes the destructive relationship between anger and our speech. 
In fact, every world religion recognizes this human predicament. It recognizes the human predicament that, the th- that we regret speaking things in the heat of our anger. Can I just bring a few from my life just this week? One was raising my voice at my kids because they ignored what I asked them to do. That's not weekly in my house. It's every day. Or this week, I had a few choice words for a pokey driver on Nicholasville Road who threatened to make me late. Yesterday, I was hollering at the TV for a bad call by a referee. This happens every week at my house, too. I curse something in my home because it doesn't last forever. It means I have to fix it. See, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one here who's ever cursed on Nicholasville Road, but... Here's what makes Christianity different from other systems of living your life. What Christianity does is it says it gives you the ability to control your anger. Christianity says that we can eliminate one of the most common sources of our hasty speech. Now, that's really, really, really countercultural, isn't it? See, the common claim is to say that our anger is a natural byproduct of our personality. And therefore, it cannot be controlled. You can suppress it, you can ignore it, but you need to let it out so you can be the authentic you. But James is saying something very different. He's saying that we're to keep it in check. Christianity says something else that's different from other world systems about our anger. James says we need to sift through our anger. James doesn't say to not be angry. He says to be slow to anger. See, in verse 19, he says to be slow to speak. In verse 26, he says to bridle your tongue. But he doesn't say don't speak. He doesn't say silence your tongue. James isn't asking you to be a stoic. He's not asking you to be emotionless. He's just asking you to limit your anger and your speech. See, there is such a thing that the Bible calls righteous anger, but our anger is rarely righteous. So the way you, one of the ways you can help know what kind of anger you're experiencing is to ask yourself some questions. You ask yourself questions like, is my anger coming from a selfish desire that got blocked? Did my anger spring up quickly? Have I slowed down enough to put my anger before the Lord and others to get their input? See, perhaps nothing should be second-guessed more than our anger. And if we can get a hold on our anger, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be slow to speak. And you're going to become a brilliant listener. Have you ever aspired to be a brilliant listener? Have you ever thought, you know what, Uh, have you ever thought about what makes a great friend? Usually it's someone who listens. Have you ever thought about it? If you're a parent, have you ever thought about that? You know what I want to engender in my kids as one of the chief things in their life? To be a great listener. Well, if you do, you got to start back further. You've got to talk about anger. You got to talk about how quick you are to talk. See, life under the word is going to affect this whole dynamic of speaking and listening in your anger. It's also going to affect your behavior. That's what verses 22 to 25 are all about. James says in verse 22, perhaps the most 
known, most, uh, most famous verse in the whole book. He says to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Now, all of this audience, they're all hearers. They've all experienced this spiritual rebirth in verse 18, but it doesn't automatically make them doers. It's kind of like the difference between reading the menu and eating the meal. You can know about the food in a restaurant without eating the meal. Or there's this illustration from a pastor this week who was preaching the same text that I did, and he tells a made-up story about a CEO, a CEO who starts a company in North America, and she wants to expand the company's business, so she moves to South America with her family, and she gets things launched down in South America, and while she's gone, she writes emails constantly to North America to make sure they know how to conduct themselves, that they have clear expectations of, of, of how the business is supposed to go in her absence. After she's there for several months, she returns. She shows up to the office, to her business, and she finds that the weeds are overgrown. The grass is way too tall. The receptionist is doing her nails at the front desk. The waste baskets are overflowing. She finally makes it back to the manager's office and he's watching funny reels of TikTok on his phone and he wants to show his boss some of his favorites. And she's dumbfounded by what she's observed and she says, what is going on? And her manager sitting there watching TikTok says, what do you mean? She says, well, what about my emails where I lay out all my expectations of how this place is supposed to be run? He replies, oh yeah, we got all those emails. And as a matter of fact, we, we meet every morning while you've been gone to study your emails. They're so interesting. You'll be pleased to know that we've actually committed some paragraphs and sentences to memory. One or two of us, we've memorized whole emails. Great stuff in those emails, boss. And she says, okay, but did, what did you do about them? And puzzled, he asked, do? We didn't do anything. See, what the Bible does is it addresses every square inch of our lives. It lays out very clear expectations of how things are supposed to go. I mean, think about the Old Testament law. Have you ever wondered, why are there all these dietary, why is there this whole dietary code in the, in the Old Testament? Why are all these, the, the, the rules for worship are so detailed. There's so much stuff in there about how to conduct your family life. There's so much on how to set up society and so on. Well, the reason is, is that what God wants to communicate is that his word affects all of our behavior. All, none of it goes untouched from what God cares about. He's wanting to hold up a mirror. That's what James uses here. Is in this illustration is a mirror. And see, the word becomes like a mirror to your soul. Just like you look into a mirror to inspect and improve your physical appearance, you use the word to inspect and improve the appearance of your soul. And the person who just hears the word is like the person who sees what needs to be fixed and leaves it like it is. It's like looking into the mirror, seeing something in your teeth and leaving it there all day. It's like looking at yourself in the mirror and you've got bed head, which I can't have anymore, and you just don't care. You leave it like that. But when you use the mirror, when you use the word as a mirror and 
You see that you need to talk less, you need to be less angry, you need to listen more. You don't discard it as unimportant. You don't just go on with your life. You want to do it. And James tries to incentivize this in verse 25. Do you see it? Verse 25, he says, you'll be blessed if you do it. And in verse 25, he does something else to incentivize it when, when he transitions from using the word to using the law of liberty. The law of liberty? Those two things together? Law? Liberty? They don't go together for most of us. See, it's because we define freedom in negative terms. It, for us, freedom means the absence of restrictions. But the ancients, they saw it differently. They saw it as a positive thing. They saw freedom as being released to fulfill what you're made for. You know, some of you know the classic illustration for this. It's like a fish in water. Fish were made to live in water where they extract oxygen from the water. Fish were made to live in water where they have fins that they can move about. And if freedom for the fish was to be free and have no restrictions, then fish could live on the water and land, right? But when a fish is on land, its fins don't help them move around. And on the land, the fish can't get oxygen. It needs water to get oxygen. And so within seconds, a fish dies when it's out of the water. So for the fish to be free, it's got to be restricted. It's got to be restricted to what it was created for. Brother and sister, you were created for the law of freedom, for the word. And for you to be most free, you've got to restrict your life to what it says. So we see in verses 19, 21, 26, we see speech. Verses 22 to 25, we see our behavior. In verse 26, we see relationships. Do you see verse 26? Relationships. James doesn't pull out the relationship being one with romantic partners. James doesn't pull out here of family members of various kinds being the kind of relationship he wants to address. He doesn't address employment relationship. He doesn't even use something general like neighbors. You see the relationship that he pulls out. It's widows and orphans. Now, widows and orphans in James's day are in effect like the homeless of the day. See, in the ancient world, the absence of money-making opportunities for women and a lack of a social welfare system provide a safety net for kids. They left widows and orphans to provide for themselves. And this is the way that every nation operated in the ancient Near East. Except for God's people, except for Israel. And that's why God was insistent on caring for the orphan and the widow. You see it in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 14 and Isaiah 1, Psalm 68. I could go on and on and on. But remember, remember James' audience. They're under trial. Life is hard for them. They're suffering. And guess who you quit thinking about when your life is being squeezed? You forget about the people who can't provide for themselves. And did you notice how James instructs us to care for them? He says to visit them in their affliction. To visit them. That's different than providing for them with our tax dollars and our charitable giving. See, what life under the, world, under the word is going to require from us is to be personally involved 
and what makes their lives so hard. So if they're suffering from a brutal addiction, you get personally involved. If they're suffering from, if they're, they're having a hard time finding work, you get involved. If they're suffering from a chronic illness, you get involved. It's going to require getting really close. It's going to require knowing names and stories. That's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we could have just done 19 through 21 and we all be, feel like we got nailed to the wall, right? But then you throw in doing the word. Then you throw in this whole issue of orphans and widows. We have three ways forward. The first is we can say, you know what? I want to earn God's favor. You could be looking at it and say, all right, God's holy. He makes demands for me. So I'm going to try really hard to earn his favor. So when you see that life under the word addresses all these real issues, you make commitments, you go for it, and then you expect God to make your life go smoothly in return. That's one way. The other way, you could say, all right, God's holy. He makes demands from us, but we don't even try because we know that we're so weak and feeble. We shrink under his demands and we feel condemned. But neither of these ways are the ways that James lays out here. He lays out a third way, and the third way he hints at in verse 21. I don't know if you noticed I skipped that over. Verse 21 This is where we see the way we should relate to all these commands. In verse 21, it says that we receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness the planted word. Now now picture this. The implanted word comes from outside of you. You're not born with it. You don't go and get it. You receive it. It's passive. I know this whole thing of slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to listen and do the word and visit orphans and widows. They seem so active and they are, but it all starts with the passive. I mean, James already been doing this. In verse 17, he says that God gives every good and perfect gift. And gifts are received. They're very different from payments. Then in verse 18, he says, of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We don't bring ourselves forth. God does. In other words, when God works in you first, when he shows you the glories of his grace, when he makes Jesus real to your soul, and he shows you how Jesus was the one who was slow to speak, that Jesus was the one who was slow to anger, Jesus was quick to listen, Jesus was always doing the word, Jesus was always visiting orphans and widows, and he did all of them perfectly, and he did it so that he could die for you, the ones who had failed to do it. And he rose again from the dead and he sends his spirit to you. And now he's empowering you to do what you once felt condemned to do. And now you practice these things. You don't practice them as a way of earning your salvation, but as a way of allowing God's energy to leak out into a fallen world. But you got to get the order right. Passive and then active. Something happens to you before something happens through you. See, God can command things from you because he supplied you with the energy to carry it out. See, do you see how this transformation occurs? Have you figured it out? 
The implanted word takes root deep within you and it transforms you. It brings conviction. It it brings assurance of mercy. It instills faith. It creates new life. And then the fruit of obedience follows. It's not easy, but it's very contrary to earning. But it's not contrary to effort. So brother and sister, will you receive this implanted word today? Will you begin to throw yourselves at God and you beg him for the desire to live under his word and the power to carry it out? Will you recognize that any hint at being able to carry it out is wholly from God and not from you? So we may we, may we be a church that lives under the word, not over it, not apart from it, but in humble submission below it. And doesn't that sound better than living in submission to yourself? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to know this law of liberty, not just know it, not just hear it, uh, but to do it. And Lord, we want to live within the restrictions that uh, you give us because we trust you as our loving Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.